0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. remember hebrews has a goal in mind when god speaks he speaks with an intentional purpose and when the authors of the scriptures under the inspiration of the holy spirit write they write for a specific purpose and the purpose of hebrews is to birth in god's people a holy confidence not to fall away from christ not to be swayed by the things of this world or or the circumstances of our day but instead Hebrews wants you to have great assurance of who Jesus is and know exactly what it is that he's done in our lives. Hebrews wants to, it wants to put uh, cement to the pillars of your faith. It, it wants to put support around your hope because it believes what we believe. And it's that the more we live for Christ, the more we will receive persecutions and hardships from the world around us. And Hebrews is constantly, it's fanning that, that faith in us, saying it cannot be passive, but it must be active and engaged day in and day out. And let us not forget, from this point, the flow of Hebrews, right? Go back with me really quickly to chapter 6 and verse 19. Chapter 6 and verse 19. And the reason I want to do this is that I don't want us to lose the track of thought that the author of Hebrews is going from here. He's, this is the ending of the last warning that we saw And he says some amazing truths for us in verse 19. He says, we, those who are in Christ, we have this sure and steady anchor of our soul. A hope that is entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see this this promise given to us at the end of the strong warning in chapter 6 that that we god's people have this sure and steady anchor and in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 he's reminding us of what Christ's priesthood this covenant he's brought about and ultimately what we'll look at today his sacrifice has purchased and maybe you're one of those people right now you're literally saying i just don't know if i can hang on Every day there's one more thing. Every day there's one more opportunity for my faith to begin to be weathered by illness. Or the emptiness in times of loss through grief. Or simply the pressure of serving your family in this community every day. And the point of Hebrews today is to just look at us square in the face and say, We can make it because we have a sure and steady anchor of our soul. Christ himself. It's to undergird us in endurance. It's to undergird us to not give up hope, but to persevere, to endure. We know that Jesus has already told us that he sympathizes with our weakness. But he is strong. But we must be those who believe what chapter 7 says, that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? His priesthood is eternal. We don't have to wait for another one to come. His is forever. We can remember what we learned in chapter 8 the last two weeks. That he is bringing about a new covenant. What is the primary thing? God's spirit becomes part of his people. He grants us new hearts. The law is written on our minds. And now today we're going to see him moving to so that Jesus is the better Sacrifice. That Jesus is the better sacrifice, all with the goal that you might see. He is the sure and steady anchor of your soul. Right now, God's saying, I care about your hope. I care about your endurance. I care about your ability to keep on following me. And he does so by making us focus all of our attention on what Christ has done. So that's my goal because it's God's goal. As we look at his word, he's going to show us why Christ's sacrifice is so much better than the old covenant. Look again with me at chapter 9. If you're a note taker, we really see this chapter kind of break up into three sections. He spends some time in verses 1 through 10 really talking about the ministry of the old covenant. And then he spends just a few sections, a few verses, thinking of speaking of the ministry of the new covenant in verses 11 through 14. And then next week, or two weeks from now, actually, because David's preaching next week. And two weeks from now, we're going to really look at the end of 9, because I love it. Because he's going to explore it in so many beautiful ways. So we're, have, we're kind of having a foundational time today that will be explored more deeply in weeks to come. But, but we see that he speaks of the ministry of the Old Covenant, the ministry of the New Covenant. Let's look at verse, the ministry of the Old Covenant, in verses 1 through 10. It says now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. How interesting is it that the temple the the tabernacle the very place that God had instituted on Mount Sinai where his people were to come to be with God it was interesting he says there is a place where I dwell there's a place where we come together to commune and to meet and this place as he describes is for of excuse me of holiness. It's one of the key things that we see in the Old Testament. When Anytime God's presence is near, we see this uh, bright shining light. We see, we see fire. We see these elements that help us to understand God's holiness. God's presence is not something we take lightly. And here he says, even in the old covenant, the first covenant, there was an earthly place. And then he begins to describe it in verse two. Look there with me. He says, for a tent was prepared the first section, and before we get into this, maybe you are like completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament and any of the laws or uh, structures of the tabernacle or the temple or any of these things. He's not going to use everything that we have been revealed, but he's focusing in. He's, he's driving our attention to one specific thing, which we'll get to. So when we read this, don't think this was all of it. There's so much more. He even says that in verse five, right? He says, oh, we cannot get into all the details now of these beautiful things. So, when we read this, maybe you're like, well, that wasn't where that was at. Maybe that, you know, just think he's, he's driving us to a point. What does he say? He says, there are 10 that first section in which the lampstand and the table of the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. When you were an Israelite and you were to go to God's tabernacle and worship him or to the temple and bring your offerings to him, it was interesting. You could not even get through the first layer. Just a priest would go to the altar to offer sacrifice, and, and then they would go into this very first section. Think of it almost like as a, as an opening, a, a, a welcome center kind of area that, that you would walk into, and there would be these particular objects there that they would tend to regularly and ritually. And it was a holy place. These places were anointed by God's Spirit, and His blood was poured on so they would be sanctified or set apart. But then he, he says, we're not going to stay here too long. Look at verse 3. He says, we're going to move on because we're going to go past the second curtain into the second section. This is called the most holy place. Having a golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant. And he begins to describe the objects who were in the Ark of the Covenant at this time. An urn holding the manna and Aaron's, bud, Aaron's staff that budded in the Ten Commandments. But think of it this way. He's kind of walking us very quickly through this, this Old Testament aspect of God's presence, of how we can commune with God, of how we have access to God. And he's moving very quickly. And he's moving through. He doesn't even talk about this huge altar on the outside where everything got sacrificed. He moves straight past that. And he goes into the, the holy place. And then he goes even quicker into the holy of holies places. And then at the holy of holy places, where does he slow down? And look at verse 5. He says, and there was a cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And there's this beautiful portrait in the Old Testament of, of what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was, it was like a, a big cart of sins. And on the top of it, there were these cherubim. There were these angels who, who we, we see in a variety of ways. They were the very ones who, who held swords at the garden so that no one could enter. They were the ones that we also see were were stitched into the very fabric of this inner curtain. They were there to remind us that we just don't easily come into God's presence. And they were here and we see they were covering, they were hovering over the mercy seat. And this mercy seat was where one time a year the high priest would come in. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And he would come in, and just one day they would would enter into the very presence of God with blood for the forgiveness of sins. Both him and the people, Israel. And we see, we see that there's this place. And it doesn't say everything that needs to be said, but what's interesting is what it does say. It says that it's profitable for us to read the Bible. Particularly the Old Testament. Because one of the things we need to understand is that everything was driving us forward. God slowly, gradually was revealing more about who he was. And on Mount Sinai, he he made a covenant with his people. And this covenant was instituted by blood and sacrifice and how we would approach him. And this text almost seems to have like a blurred vision of everything on the outside so that it drives us to the mercy seat. Why the mercy seat? Why the mercy seat? And why were they only allowed to go one time into this place that contained the mercy seat and, and sprinkle seven times blood upon this for the sacrifices? Why does the author want us to focus in on the mercy seat of God? Well, one of the things we need to understand from the Old Testament is that is where it was said God's presence was to dwell, she kind Shekinah glory that we see in the Old Testament, where it rested was on the mercy seat. It's almost like God's representation of God's throne in the heavens was there and he was among them. And so what we have to remember, what we have to do, we're talking about access to God, God's presence among us. So he's describing this in a beautiful way, reminding us that there's glory overshadowing this mercy seat. But he says we're not to speak too much into detail because he's going to keep going. Because he doesn't just talk about this place, the, the location where God's presence dwells, but he, he moves on to a sacrifice now in verses 6 and 7. Look at there with me. Again, we're speaking of the ministry of the Old Covenant. These preparations, thus having been made, the high priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. All right, they were to, they were to change the bread out. They were to adjust oil for the lampstand. They were to trim the wick of the candles. There was a variety of things that they were to do every day. He says, but into this second one, verse 7 says, He would but once a year, and yet without not without taking blood, for which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Again, take note of what the author does not say, but emphasizes here. There are so many details the book of Leviticus has about this scenario and this scene and what's to happen. But he wants to go straight to the idea of that he can't go without blood. That he can't go without blood. It seems as Hebrews wants us to focus on simply this act itself of this idea of a sacrifice necessary. And it uses the word unintentional sins of the people. And I want to make sure you understand what Hebrews is, is using, the author of Hebrews, right? This doesn't mean like, oops, I sinned. And then you realize it, and that's what was atoned for in this moment. This word unintentional can be translated in a variety of ways. But if you were here when we studied the book of Numbers, and we studied Numbers 15, and we talked about high handed sins, and we talked about this reality in Numbers 15. High handed sins are where you know you're sinning, and you don't care, and you're wagging your hand at God. You're saying, I don't care what you say, I don't, just intentionally, Walking into sin and saying, screw you, God. This is the idea he's having here, not the idea like, oops, I sinned and I didn't realize I did. David knew, I mean, he, David knew that he was sinning against Bathsheba, but he was willing to repent. He wasn't wagging his hand back at God saying, no, I won't repent of this. No, he was willing to. So he's not saying just the, it's just a small amount of sins. No, this is the, all the sins, but especially not for those who are in unrepentant state before the Lord. This unintentional sin is not meaning the things that we don't realize, but also it's the idea of fist towards God This is the very idea of unrepentant sin. And this is what was being atoned for in the old covenant. But notice how often they would have to go. Once a, once a year. For how many years? Every year. Every year. Imagine that. Imagine. That day build up. You're like, oh, it's getting really close to Yom Kippur. I'm so excited. The high priest, he's going to go in and he's going to atone for our sins, both his and the people. And then he goes in and he atones for the sins. And you're like, yes. And then you walk home and you yell at your wife and you sin against her. And you're like, dang, i got to wait a whole another year again. And immediately the burdens of all the sins began to build up, began to build up, and then it was washed away. And then immediately, guess what happened? It began to build up and it began to build up again. And this is what he's reminding them of, guys, that this was regularly something they would do. They would repeatedly go in and they had to bring blood. And he's making some interesting observations here in verses 8 through 10. So let's look at them with me. It says, by this, so he's explaining the situation, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. First, pause. How amazing is it that the author of Hebrews believes who is behind the writing of the Old Testament? the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Jews of these, the people, they believe the Holy Spirit was an author of the Old Testament. There's a testimony to it right here. But it says that what he's indicating, something interesting, that the way into the holy places is not open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Basically, what he's saying here is this idea, the Holy Spirit's teaching us something, that we can't Enter into the Holy of Holies while the temple sacrificial system is still going on. We cannot enter as long as this is still going on. And we see it. Think of it time-wise. Don't think of it um, basis-wise. We think of it time-wise. And we see it in verse eight, uh, 9 why. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until What time? The time of Reformation. Don't think Martin Luther. Don't think John Calvin. Don't think Erwig Zwingli. No, he's not talking about that Reformation. But he's talking about the moment that the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant is no more. When did that happen? Approximately 70 A.D. God himself shut down... The Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you realize Jews nowadays, they don't have it. There is no sacrifice at the Temple Mount. It's ceased to exist. Why? Because God Himself has said, no, there has been a sufficient sacrifice. What's interesting is even, even it was much later, it was like three or four hundred, the, the Jewish rabbis got together and said, man, we got to rethink how we explain the Old Testament now because we can't sacrifice. So they had to reinterpret the Old Testament in some ways with some, some nuances and new things that they had to bring about. Why? Because the sacrificial system is gone. It is no more, just like Jesus, uh, we're being told here. This age has ceased. It's no more. They were, not only that, but look at what it was not able to do. These sacrifices were not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they dealt with food and drink and various washings. Everything that had to do with external Think of what Jesus said now. When you think of food and washings, Jesus says it's not what you put into the body that defiles you, right? Jesus is helping us to understand what they're meaning here. It's not what I put into me that defiles me, but it's what What comes out of the heart that defiles us. The Old Testament system only dealt with external realities. Washing of the body. Washing of food. Washing your hand, all these variety of things. But it never truly changed the worshiper. The focus here is that the Holy Spirit says access to God was very limited in this time back then. The high priest, that he would go in once a year. That basically the the tabernacle said, you cannot draw near to me. But we see something interesting as it breaks into the verse 11. We see that that a day of atonement was was not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You see, every year they would have to go back and sacrifice again. But Jesus was not so. Look at Jesus' covenant that he brings about in verse 11 now. One of the things you need to think about when you think of the old covenant, think they had to regularly, repeatedly offer sacrifice that never really worked. Can you imagine being in that system? The system where I have to earn, I have to pay back, I have to do this. And then the moment, and, and then you have to come back again, and you have to work, and you have to come back again. But nothing ever truly cleansed you. Nothing ever truly prepared your conscience. I think the Lord was merciful to these people who truly believed that there was a sacrifice to come. But, but nonetheless, the Spirit of God did not indwell them. But in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared, as the high priest of the good things that to come, and again, he's using a location now, through the greater and more perfect ten, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now we've got to think back to what he said in, in chapter seven and chapter six. Where is Jesus? He's in the heavens, directly with the Father. So Jesus is in a location now, the very presence of God. And what is he doing? He's offering his sacrifice, he's, he's reminding of the Lord of what he's accomplished on this earth, so we see a place, the true presence of God. Verse 12 says as he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but of the means of his very own blood. This greater, more perfect ten, not made with hands, is not of this creation. One of the interesting things, I think that when you read, that's what I love what Hebrews is doing. It's reminding us how to be better readers of our Bible. If you're familiar with Exodus, Exodus is where Moses met with God, where they're getting all these instructions and repeated I, a lot My my guess is 20 plus. You would see this phrase, according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mount. You saw this time and time and time and time and time again. And one of the things this needs to remind you is that God is always active in history. God's always active in history. He was active in the people of Israel and he's active now, today, in different ways. A more clear, a more precise sacrifice has been accomplished We don't have it better. We just have the completeness of it. The structure is essential. Read the Bible to see how it points us to the climax and fulfillment of Christ. But this Christ, look at the language. Remember we saw before regularly, habitually having to repeat the blood sacrifice. Look at the words here in verse 12. Once for all. How many times, and we're going to see this repeated a whole bunch in the coming weeks. In chapters 9 and 10, we see this idea of once for all, Jesus' one sacrifice was sufficient to bring about salvation for all of God's people. How beautiful is that? Like sacrifice isn't happening continually right now. Like Jesus isn't up in heaven having to slit his arm to drip some more blood out every time you sin. Jesus isn't having to take the cup of of the blood that He saved. If He saved, there, well, He didn't save any, but they poured a little bit of them out every time. Oh, you sinned again! Let me drip a little bit more out. Oh, you sinned again! Let me drip a little bit more out. No, there was a one sacrifice that was sufficient, and we're going to see this explained in beautiful language at the end of this chapter. But once for all, and He didn't do it with the blood of goats and calves. And we see this kind of this marching cry: "Not goats and calves! Not goats and calves! Not goats and calves! His own blood." And this has to do with this will that he talks about in the coming weeks. But what I, want, what I want to try to do, and I want to emphasize this point, because I've heard us sometimes in modern world use Jesus' blood like a lucky foot of a rabbit. We throw out the, the blood of Jesus like it's just our little thing we rub real quick so that we can be you know, protected in this moment and all these things. And what I want to be careful of is that you never separate the blood of Jesus from Jesus himself. Yes, we see throughout Scripture, and we see even in verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I understand that. Yet, we must notice, and we must never separate the blood from the person of Jesus. I say this because we cannot simply make Jesus a blood donor and a lucky rabbit's foot. He is king of kings, He is Lord of Lords, who has stepped down out of heaven, gave of himself so that we might have life. He's not so that you can have your moment in the sun now, that you can use Jesus to get your new job, or you can use Jesus for this, or you can, no, Jesus says, I've taken care of your greatest problem. You are a sinner under the wrath of God. Blood means something had to die. Something had to give up life. The shedding of blood was a concept to reveal the giving of a life as a sacrifice. And we see this in Leviticus, don't we? Leviticus chapter 17. It will be up on the screen for you. But just to remind you, this is something that they emphasized back in this time. He says in verse 10 of chapter 17, If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers or sojourn among them eats any of the blood, I will set my face against the person who eats the blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you for on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So the primary reason blood had to be shed is that atonement had to be made. And I don't I don't want to, I don't try not to, to be overly unsympathetic or but Jesus' is in blood isn't what you can use to cover something so that you can get a blessing out of it. You've got to be very careful with that. This idea that that now I can use the blood of Jesus and I can manipulate circumstances because I'm his and he's mine, that's not the point of the shedding of the blood of Christ. It was so that you will not endure the wrath of God that you deserve. It has everything to do with the fact that you deserve God's wrath. Your sin is damnable for all of eternity. Don't trivialize the death of Jesus by making his blood something you can just use as a lucky finger charm or whatever you want to do with it. We cannot do that. And I'm not saying we don't focus on the blood. I mean, we have songs written about the blood. Nothing but the blood can wash away my sins. There is a fountain filled with blood. I mean, if you weren't a Christian and you weren't sure what we were talking about, you might be freaked out because if you hear this language. But at the core of what we believe as Christians is that there was a death we deserved and someone who took our place, giving us his righteousness. So I want to be careful that we do not minimalize what this text is saying. It's saying Jesus gave his life for you. But not only that, look at what he says he gave it for. Verse 12, it says he entered once for all into the holy places, but not by the means of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing eternal redemption. Redemption. The story of redemption is written in his hands. We sang that just a moment ago. But what does it mean to be redeemed? This is a lost word for us. If we're not careful, this is a lost word in our culture and our context. We've been modernized so much in our thinking and the way we do things. That redemption is something that I think if we're not careful we miss. But in the biblical period, it had the concept of buying back from slavery. See, in Israel, if you were to not be able to pay a debt, you couldn't go claim chapter 11 or 12 or 14 or whatever that is that you can claim and have your bankruptcy absolved and your debts all gone. You couldn't do that back then. Here's what you had to do. I would have had to sell some of my daughters into slavery to pay back my debt. Or sell myself till my debt was paid off. Literally, serving someone else till my debts are paid. Unless you just had a really rich uncle who showed up on the scene and paid off your debt. And he redeemed you out of slavery back into a life for something better. And this is what Jesus is Blood-purchased death gives you eternal redemption. You've been bought back from what? Sin. A life of focusing on yourself. A life of seeking to please those around you. This language of redemption had to do with the idea of free, no longer having to pay back your debt, but now you're free to no longer for self, but for he who set you free. Maybe you're here right now, and literally the greatest struggle in your life is that you're running from relationship to relationship to relationship because you simply cannot find your identity in anything else other than relationship. And you're constantly crushed. You are literally a slave to your relationships, One of the things that this means, that his death not only means that you are eternally set with the Father, wrath absorbed, but in this moment you've been redeemed from trying to find your identity in relationships, and now in your maker himself. Or maybe you're like me, and I constantly am struck and felt the desire for prestige and the praise of man. I don't have to worry about the praise of man anymore. I'm not a slave to what people think about me anymore. But instead I can find my identity and the one who says, I've bought you, I've purchased you, and I've sealed you. You're mine now. I've drank your wrath, I've absorbed your sin, and I'm using you to follow me all my days. This is redemption. Redemption echoes of the idea that you've been brought out of the slavery of sin and self to serve Christ. And this happened through his life. But not only that, look at verse 13 now as we finish with the last two verses. One of the things he begins to show here, again, he's emphasizing the difference between the old system and the new system. And he goes back to the old system for just a little bit in verse 13. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews never denies that the Old Testament system truly purified in some level, but it only purified the what? Flesh. The external. He's not denying this reality. I remember just probably five or six years ago, I very rarely try to wear an all-white shirt anymore on Sundays. And there's a specific reason for that, because there was a, a day I was wearing a, a shirt, man, and I looked sharp, and I was drinking my coffee, and I found a hole in my mouth. And just coffee everywhere. So I run to the bathroom, and I vigorously grab the warm water and squirt some soap, and I'm just rubbing, I'm just rubbing, I'm just rubbing, I'm just trying with all my might to get this stain off, and it's not working. So I put on a tie and a jacket so that you couldn't see it. I tied my stain... But I remember it was in that moment, I had just just recently had read Hebrews, believe it or not, about five years ago. And as I'm sitting there vigorously trying to erase this stain on my shirt, this outside layer of my, the God looks down and he reminds me of this text in Hebrews that we're looking at even now. He says, no matter how hard you try to follow my ways, no matter how hard you try to do this on your own, it's just like trying to get that coffee stain out. You cannot remove the guilty conscience you have because of your sin. But I have done something for you. I've done something for you because you believed in my Son. And it says, I will cleanse your conscience. And Christ alone does this work. The old covenant could only purify the flesh, but how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? See, the extent of Christ's cleansing power is that he purifies us at our core. Now, what's the difference between the flesh and the conscience? Maybe you're like, man, these are words that I'm just not really familiar with. The flesh would be, would be this external body. It's used in a variety of ways in Scripture. But here, it's merely focusing on the outside of us. I mean, think of how Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. right? He says, you're like whitewashed tombs the outside you look nice and clean but the inside still what completely corrupt that's all the old testament law and system did but jesus says, i'm coming to do something different i'm coming to give you a new conscience a new conscience what is a conscience a conscience is something that all of us have a conscience is something that focuses on the inside but he didn't say soul he could have because soul focuses on the inside. He could have used the Old Testament word heart, which often means the inner core of who we are. He chose not to. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chose the word conscience. Why? Why did he choose the word conscience? What exactly is a conscience? Maybe if you think of it as this little voice in your head, or if your back, that's that little voice behind your head. For some reason, she uses the word Behind. Or it's that little angel on your right shoulder, you know, that's telling you the right thing to do. No, the scripture actually tells us the conscience is something similar to this idea, but it's actually a capacity. It's not something that you can dissect. I can't like cut open you when you die and pull out your conscience. It's not like an organ that's laid kind of in the back of your body. No, a conscience is a capacity that we've all been given to feel moral rightness. It's the concept of what's right or wrong but it also brings out the, guilt, the, uh, the feelings of guilt or innocence. It's a gift from God because it can shame us when we're guilty but it can give us great delight when we feel innocent. Young man just the other day, we were talking to Believe It or Not about conscience in one of my classes and he says this, well Mr. Michael, is it like this and I was walking and I spilt my water. It was just a little bit but I spilt it and I started walking away. And then I felt really bad because I didn't clean up my mess. I felt bad because I knew it was wrong. I thought it was just water. But he says, I spilt it. I need a mess. I need to make it right. I need to go clean it up. And and then he took his paper towel and he cleaned up his mess. I'm like, yes, Stephen, that is your conscience. It's that, that... capacity deep within inside us that tells us this is right or this is wrong. And then I had another student that, that, that said, "Well, I, if that was me, I would just keep walking because I don't care about that. Does he not have a conscience? No, we all do, and there's no way I could explain all of that at this time. But we need to understand it's the capacity for moral choices to judge between right and wrong and then, based on those choices, the conscience will also bring out shame from guilt or delight from innocence. This helps us to understand that the conscience he's referring to is that strong feeling of uncleanliness we experience sometimes through our sin. That idea of the burden of sin that we hear sometimes, or that idea like you sin and you just feel dirty. You could have just washed, taken yourself in the shower and washed every part of the exterior of your body, but you still feel what? Dirty. Because your sin's weighing heavy on you and it's bringing about this feeling of uncleanliness and guilt and despair. And the point... The author of Hebrews is offering here because if we were still in the old system, it doesn't matter how many goats you kill, that blood will never wash away that that feeling of dirtiness and uncleanliness that we experience. But Christ, he came because he truly forgives. Because he truly takes the wrath we deserve. Have you ever felt guilty, dirty? Now our conscience is again there's so much we could get into but the emphasis here is that he works from the inside to produce in us something brand new If you're struggling with the weight of your sin then look to the sufficiency of Christ's death plead that he would give you a clean conscience for he delights to do this according to this text But I don't want to stop there look at the very end of verse 14 This is so important Because he says, right? he purifies our conscience so that we can keep on doing what we want to do. No, he says, from dead works to serve the living God. Your conscience is still not your primary problem. The problem is that you love to serve your flesh and the world. And we need a new heart that transforms us in such a way that not only do I want to follow God, but my conscience affirms in me, this is pleasing to the Lord conscience not so that you can keep on sinning he gives you a conscience why to free you from the dead works of the flesh and the world so that you might now serve the living god think of 1st peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 1st peter chapter 4 we hear peter speak of the same idea he says since Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking forever suffered in the flesh Has ceased from sin. God doesn't say, "I just, I'm just, I, I just don't want you to feel guilty anymore." No, God cares about the shame and guilt we feel, but He says, "I want you to serve Me. I want you to worship Me. I do this work of rearranging forgiveness and sin, cleansing your conscience. Know that not so that you can continue to walk in the flesh, but so that everything about your life is now turned towards Me." And this is what Peter says. He says, so as to live for the rest of your time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is why he gives you a clean conscience, so that you can follow God's will and obey him all of your days. We'll see this in the latter parts of Hebrews. He washes your conscience so that you can serve the living, true God. I'm afraid I'm afraid if you were like me young young in my walk I was just using Jesus to clear my conscience not because I wanted to follow him I was just tired of feeling guilty but God had to write a new story into my heart and my life that Josh I'm forgiving you that Josh I'm free in the guilt of your conscience and the shame that you feel not merely because guilt and shame but because you must now follow me is that us this morning? Are you burdened with the weight of guilt? Are you burdened with the weight of sin? Then look to Christ, but not so that you can simply feel but so that we can serve our risen King. covenant doesn't merely cleanse the outside, but that He gives us a clean conscience so that we can follow Him all our days. This is worth our lives, his death, so that we might be free to serve him. We'll dig more into this in the coming weeks, but for now, may we rejoice that God works to cleanse us deep inside. Father, we come now thanking you for your word, asking that you would help us. Lord, we... Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultry.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.